0: Thank you for joining us. I'm here with the author of the new book, The Mother Court, Tales of Cases That Mattered in America's Greatest Trial Court, James D. Zirin. Uh, Let's segue into talking about this book. Now, I've read it, and I feel like it defies categorization a little bit because um, I I sort of expected it to be a memoir, and while you, you absolutely talk about your experiences in The Mother Court, it's a little bit of history of The Mother Court, it's a little bit of advice on being a litigator, it's profiling famous cases that have come before it. Um, I just feel like it's a really interesting mixture. How did you decide what to write about and how to structure the book?
1: Well, I I really didn't want to write a memoir. I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be about the court, but necessarily uh, it had to be about me because I came of age as a lawyer practicing in uh, the mother court and learning the uh, the lessons and the culture of the mother court. Uh, so I like to think of it as a personal history enhanced by intimacy. And uh, I uh, uh, write about cases I was involved in. I write about uh, cases uh, that I read about, cases that I witnessed, and uh, uh, cases uh, that uh, were very, very prominent cases, uh, high-profile cases that came before the court, which I argue had a transforming impact on American life. All these cases unfolded in the mid-20th century. So it's not a history, it's not a memoir, and as you say, it's uh, uh, a lot of different things. But uh, most of all, it's uh, uh, the lessons I learned in the the mother court as I, uh, I came of age as a trial lawyer.
0: James, can you tell us a little bit about your career and what led you to write this book?
1: Well, I began my uh, legal career uh, at a private Wall Street law firm. And after about two and a half years, I became an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. But my love affair with the Southern District of New York, which is called by lawyers the Mother Court, uh, began while I was still in college. And I began visiting the court to watch trials. And uh, I usually watched criminal trials because they were easy to understand. And uh, one trial I watched uh, was uh, United States against Kahana, and it was a fascinating case. It was tried before Judge Edward Weinfeld, who was a giant of a judge, and was the dean of American trial judges. He was an absolute legend in the courthouse. He was at his desk at 5 o'clock in the morning working. He took the bench promptly at 9.30. Uh, his demeanor on the bench was unbelievably impressive he dominated the courtroom he had uh lincoln-esque features and uh, penetrating eyes and uh, it was just fascinating to watch this case unfold so that's when it all started for me
0: now you said in other interviews that you considered uh, journalism instead of law is is this the reason we lost you uh
1: no uh, uh i think that some years after that when uh I was still in college, and I was wondering whether to be a writer or to be a lawyer. I realized I could be a writer and be a lawyer, and uh, that's what I wound up doing.
0: Before reading this book, I did not fully appreciate that all of these major cases came through this particular district court. And I also didn't have as good of a feel for some of the people involved. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, relationship with Robert Morgenthau?
1: Well, when I was uh, in college and I uh, uh, watched the Keogh case, I never dreamed, which was before Judge Weinfeld, I never dreamed that the first case I would try would be before a jury, uh, as, and that would be as an assistant United States attorney. And for three thrilling years, uh, I served under Bob Morgenthau as an assistant United States attorney. I tried 36 cases to a jury which is really an amazing record. I mean, now in three years, an assistant U.S. attorney might try three to five cases uh, because fewer cases are being tried. Now, Bob Morgenthau was a uh, quintessential public servant. Uh, His enthusiasm for the public service was contagious. It was perhaps because of his family background. His grandfather had been Wilson's ambassador to Turkey. His father had been the secretary of the Treasury. Uh, and uh, he uh, was noted for his independence in the office. It was independence of, of mind, independence of thought, and independence of Washington. He was a great infighter with the bureaucracy in Washington, and uh, he would uh, really wanted to run his own office, which he did with very little interference from Washington. And I worked closely with him on a number of investigations, and I came to acquire a tremendous Affection and, and admiration for him
0: Well it must be reciprocal Because uh, he wrote the forward to this book
1: Yes he kindly did write the forward to the book And I think uh, the forward really uh, uh, Is uh, a, a forward Because it says uh, What is going to be said in the book
0: Absolutely Some of the characters And I say characters But these are actual people um, Who are profiled in this book And, and whose cases you talk about Uh, They seem almost Shakespearean. It's hard to believe that they are really – that these are real historical figures rather than the inventions of of fiction writers. You devote one chapter of the book to Roy Cohn, who's been a really polarizing figure uh, in American history. Can you talk a little bit about the chapter in your book where you discuss him?
1: Well, Roy Cohn, of course, was one of the prosecutors in the Rosenberg case. He was the uh, chief counsel to Senator McCarthy. Uh, in uh, the McCarthy's various uh, investigations and uh, to find communists in the State Department, the Army, or wherever they were in, uh, in American life, uh, he was a malevolent kind of figure. He had a sort of a twisted face, uh, and the pictures of him are uh, quite famous. Of his whispering in McCarthy's ear, he was always whispering in someone's ear. Uh, he was later uh, indicted three times in the Mother Court and uh, stood trial four times. The first trial ended in a hung jury. The second, third, and fourth trials ended in acquittals. Uh, I came to know him because he had clients in the courthouse when uh, I was an assistant and also when we were investigating him. Uh, And he was uh, quite a character. And uh, I uh, sat through the last part of uh, his uh, second, uh, really his third trial, and second indictment, where he was uh, indicted for conspiracy to uh, commit bribery and he was represented by uh, a very fine uh, defense lawyer who was a great cross-examiner named joseph brill and joseph brill uh, cross-examined all of the government's witnesses and then when the government rested uh, then and brill cross-examined them quite effectively brill appeared to have a heart attack and he was rushed to the hospital so the judge threw up his hands. He said, we've been here for such a long time. What are we going to do? Uh, Mr. Brill isn't available. Uh, how are we going to conclude the trial, which meant the summations? And uh, Cohn said, not to worry, Judge. I will sum up in my own behalf. And there was no way anyone thought of to stop him. So Cohn, who had not taken the stand and was never cross-examined, summed up to the jury. He gave one of the best summations I ever heard in the courthouse, and uh, he was acquitted.
0: The quotes that you include in the book really are quite amazing. He sounds like kind of the consummate showman.
1: Well, he was. He, he was a short man, and uh, he uh, was not uh, very easy to look at. Uh, but uh, he did get his personality across in his summation uh, as someone who had been wronged by friends who and had betrayed by friends who were the witnesses who testified against him.
0: Well, I don't think we can talk about... The uh, district court in this area without addressing terrorism as you do uh, you have um, several personal connections to the events of 9-11 can you describe that time period and and how you were affected by the terrorist events of 9-11 and more importantly what you felt should have been the venue for the subsequent
1: trials it was uh, an extraordinary uh, period, an extraordinary time in my life. My office was on the 54th floor of Number 1 World Trade Center on 9-11. Uh, I fortunately was not in the building when the plane struck uh, uh, the first of the Twin Towers. Uh, and uh, I was on my way there when I heard about it. And uh, uh, I, of course, lost my office and all of the contents of my office and all of my files and records. And uh, I began to think a great deal about terrorism and its role in the world. I realized we were in a new era. The government, uh, of course, in the George Bush administration, cracked down on uh, terrorists with um, uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, expanded surveillance, uh, and uh, imprisonment without uh, trial in Guantanamo. And uh, the people that were arrested shortly after 9-11 they're still in Guantanamo with uh, certain exceptions. And uh, I began to think about how uh, these uh, terrorists should be dealt with, and uh, I realized the architect of the 9 11 conspiracy was someone named Khalil Sheikh Mohammed, who is a resident of Guantanamo now, and his trial is actually in process before a military commission that's gone on for some time. My problem with the military commission approach is uh, that the trial is conducted largely in secret. Uh, The rules of evidence are extremely relaxed to permit hearsay evidence and in many cases to permit coerced evidence against the defendant uh, so that uh, when the trial is concluded and presumably there's no jury and uh, presumably there will be a verdict of guilty and it will be a subject of appeal and appellate uh, litigation for some time to come. And the international community will always question whether Khalil Sheikh Mohammed got a fair trial. On the other hand, in the Mother Court, which was founded in 1789 as the oldest federal court in the country uh, and is celebrating its 225th anniversary this year, you have 225 years of jurisprudence, which uh, are hailed all over the world as a model and uh, which uh, will provide the kind of fair trial that uh, Khalil Sheikh Mohammed should have. It's, refre- uh, it's, it's notable that a number of terrorist cases were tried in the Southern District of New York before 9-11. You had uh, the Statue of Liberty case in 1961, where a group of Quebec's uh, separatists uh, tried to blow up the uh, Statue of Liberty and uh, and the Liberty Bell. Uh, You had a number of cases that Mary Jo White brought before 9-11, involving the attack on the coal and the attack on the U.S. embassies. And recently, you've had two cases that were prosecuted successfully, uh... in the southern district without any incident whatsoever and uh... uh they were successful prosecutions so i am uh... mother am uh... card carrying mother courtist. i'm a great fan of uh... of our judicial system i think it's a model for the world and i think that is the forum in which uh, terrorists should be tried
0: well as a card carrying mother courtist uh... since the nineteen sixties i believe what have been the greatest changes you have seen uh, from the 1960s to today. You talk a little bit in the book about the digitization. What effects do you think modern technology has had about the way cases are heard, and do you feel it's a positive change or a negative one?
1: Well, of course, uh, I don't want to say, as Sue Menger said of Hollywood, that the uh, parties were better then. Uh, but uh, in uh, what I, intoxicated me from the very beginning was the drama of the law, Uh, It was live theater, the the way judges conducted themselves in the courtroom, the way lawyers argued, uh, the way uh, cross-examinations occurred, uh, the way cases unfolded. Now uh, you have a very different kind of situation. You have the judge sits on the bench with at least one computer that gives him the testimony in real time. Uh, He's looking at the computer and not at the witness. Uh, as opposed to what used to be the case where the judge with his penetrating eyes would look right into the soul of the witness. Uh, Documents are projected on a screen. Now, I recognize we're in an era when most people get most of their information from a screen and not from books uh, and not from reading documents. But documents are projected on a screen. They're highlighted on the screen. And it's just a very different kind of proceeding from the point of view of drama. Is it worse? No, I don't think it's worse. Uh, The Mother Court continues to be cutting-edge. The judges have been appointed are spectacular. Uh, The cases that come before them involve uh, gay marriage, involve NSA spying, uh, involve terrorism, all the things we're worried about in the world. So the Mother Court hasn't lost its place in the world. It's just the way it uh, transacts its business is digitized and somewhat different. So I miss uh, what occurred before, because I think it's very different today.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, compiling a history of what came before then. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, thank you very much for um, for chatting with me.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or
1: subscribe for free to the ABA Journal Podcast on iTunes.